The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Today, we will discuss the Texas Tech, Oklahoma, and Arkansas games. Plus, we will reveal our list for the top 50 football players at West Virginia of the 21st century, starting with the rankings 50 to 46. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Braden Cork, and this is, is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, before we get started, I just want to encourage everybody to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And just to clarify, that is a different Voice of Motown account than Brad's Voice of Motown. Um, So make sure that you're searching for the Voice of Motown podcast. And don't just follow us. Make sure you follow Brad's accounts, too. He has a lot of good content and breaking news that he shares, and he's very quick about it, too. So Uh, If you want the latest and greatest, make sure you follow him. Um, Also, make sure that you follow and rate us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere else that you listen to your podcast. Really helps us um, grow our audience and um, you know improve our product. Um, And then, lastly, you know if you like what you hear, consider dropping us a donation. There's a link in our description, and um, every little bit helps. And lastly, look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. And make sure you stick around for the end of the podcast for our rankings of top 50 football players of the 21st century to see if our rankings match up with yours. Before all that, we're going to discuss some basketball. So let's get into the Texas Tech game. The West Virginia Mountaineers are defeated by Texas Tech by the score of 78 to 65. Unfortunately, it was the type of game we should be used to seeing by now. A tightly contested first half, and then WVU's opponent pulls away in the second half to win by a large margin. Um, West Virginia, I mean, they even had the lead with six minutes left in the game, but it was all downhill after that. The story of this game ends up being too many West Virginia turnovers, too many offensive rebounds given up, and too many points in the paint by the Red Riders. What do you think? Yeah, it was a tough game to watch, especially that second half, because the first half, it really seemed like we were able to hang in with the team who um, is just has been on a tear lately. I mean, their defense has been great. They've beat some really, really good teams, but they really discombobulated us in the second half, um, you know, with the offensive rebounds, um, you know, they out offensive rebounded us by nine um, out turnover margin by eight. Um, and it was just, you know not fun to watch WV play that way because when you're letting an opponent get second, third, sometimes even fourth chances, um, it's just hard to watch. And, you know, some of that's due to our lack of size. Some of it's just due to us not having a consistent big man, but man, um, overall it was just kind of painful as a WV fan to watch the team fall apart again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. There, there were some good things I noticed in the game, but we'll start off with some of the bad Good pressure on the perimeter and denying the ball inside, but sometimes they were just absolutely losing their man underneath, it looked like. And this has been an issue in several Big 12 games. Texas Tech ended up with 30 points in the paint, and to me, a majority of those points are because West Virginia is losing their man, and they are going in for uncontested layups, or Texas Tech was just getting fast break opportunities due to West Virginia's turnovers on Saturday. Either way, that should be unacceptable. Too many easy buckets. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, on the flip side of things, WVU didn't make the most of their opportunities. So um, WVU as a team went eight for 20 in the paint. Um, and it's just not very good. Um, you know, Polly Polycap was the best. Uh, he went three for four. Taz went two for four. But no one else, even Curry, who had a pretty solid night, shot better than 50% from inside the paint. Um, which is really frustrating because, you know, those are the buckets that you need to hit. And, you know, the best teams in the country are shooting 60% from there, and we struggle to even hit 40%. Um, so that's a big deal. And, you know, that kind of just translates back to the rebounding issues where, you know, due to our lack of size, our lack of physicality down there, um, we're not able to really kind of take advantage of good opportunities and, one, end possessions whenever a team misses a shot. 
and two, finish possessions whenever we get the ball in a high percentage opportunity. Yeah, the last few games, it's been a big issue finishing um, once we get around the rim, which is unfortunate because you work so hard to get the ball down there and then you miss those easy buckets. Um, But yeah, you bring up the rebounding problem. Lots of offensive rebounds for Texas Tech, 17. And although the refs weren't doing WVU any favors in this category on Saturday, um, you know, West Virginia has to take responsibility for this issue because this isn't anything new. And the Mountaineers can't allow that many second chance opportunities when they struggle so much offensively. Polly Polycat played 18 minutes and he pulled down one rebound the entire game. So WVU can't have that from their big men. Yeah, and that, that was a tough thing for me with Polycap too, because like I said earlier, he went three for four. Um, he had seven points. He made a free throw after he got fouled on one. So he was the best scorer in there, but only the one rebound. He did have a couple blocks, but you know we just don't have a guy down there who's going to consistently rebound, consistently contest the rim, and consistently make a basket. Um, and I, I don't know what the solution there is. Um, it, it's just really really a tough situation and you know whenever uh jumping to a couple other guys whenever you're turning the ball over a lot um sherman with six turnovers Ketty with four turnovers in 15 minutes um mcneil only having seven points putting up two shots in the second half bridges only putting up one shot in the second half you know th- they're obviously trying to take these guys out of the game on the perimeter that are good perimeter players like bridges and mcneil um, and our guys still can't kind of take advantage of those less crowded paint areas um, to get more offensive rebounds, which we only had eight of or score. Um, and I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I would love Polycap to be able to play more, but he's got to be able to grab rebounds. I would love to be able to have, you know, Kerrigan in there more, but he's got to be able to do something on offense. Um, with Gabe, he shows streaks on offense, but. You know, at times he just kind of disappears. I don't think he made a basket against Texas Tech. Um, and even though he's great defensively and was the best rebounder on the team. And then with Cottrell, you know, his offense is just so streaky, you know, missing jumpers at a pretty high rate right now and not really getting into the high percentage areas and finishing. Um, he finished one for three in the paint. Um, and he's been pretty good defensively, but just like Polycap, he doesn't grab rebounds. I think he's averaging like three or four rebounds a game for the tallest guy on our team. Yeah, yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. Just way too many turnovers for West Virginia, 17. And um, Taz had six. Keedy Johnson had four, tying a season high for him. And this is leading to several easy buckets. Uh, We just can't have that, you know. But if if we're trying to talk about some of the positives, WVU was spacing the floor and not crowding the hoop early on, which did lead to a lot of cleaner inside looks. Now, the issue is we're not finishing them, but uh, at least that's encouraging because I, you know, I have noticed lately it seems like we aren't crowding the bucket as much as we were early on in Big 12 play. Um, They seem to get away from it. Ultimately, what's still really odd is we only had six assists, even with all that being said. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I I have this kind of in in my next section, section here, kind of over the overall thoughts, but, you know, it's just a trend now where, the ball movement is so poor and you know, some of it I do think is, you know, because of our players, when you have guys like Taz and Sean who are much more ISO related players and guys like bridges who score much better off of assists, cuts to the lane, catch and shoot threes, things like that. So you'd really don't have that shot creator for other people. But I think part of it too, is that this system that Huggins runs is designed for that type of guy. So if you look kind of historically, look at the guys who have, you know, played the best Taz Curry this year, McBride, Juwan Staten, even though he had a high assist count, um, Deshaun Butler. Um, it works for post guys like Kanate, Culver, Devin Williams, Kevin Jones, guys who are really good at one-on-one scoring, um, you know, outside of Staten and McBride, we've never really had a, a guard who's averaged more than four or five assists per game. Um, and it's not that much different of a system. Um, you know, we really don't have an offense that kind of runs like beeline system did that relied on, you know, off ball screens to get guys open for threes, backdoor cuts for slashers. And I think our team is built much more like that. So, um, it's really frustrating to kind of see, you know, the system kind of being built to, you know, support ISO scores, which we do have some good ones, but since the big 12 defenses, which they are all elite this year 
have kind of figured out how to solve that and they have the guys to stop that, um, I would like to see Huggins come up with a counterpunch because um, the offense we've seen for the past 10 plus years is just not working. Yeah, I'm with you. And if you heard some of um, Coach Huggins' press conference, he was saying that he's calling plays and the players just aren't running them, which is kind of weird to hear because this seems like a good group of guys, a lot of you know seniors and leadership on the team. So you would think that that wouldn't be an issue with these guys. But, uh, you know, that's what the coach is saying in the press conference. So I don't know if that's the issue with the offense, if they're just being stubborn and they're trying to go ISO even when Coach Huggins doesn't want them to. But uh, I think you make a good point that they are kind of built like a beeline system where they would be good at back cutting and, and setting off um, off the ball screens to get open because that's just the, you know, that's just the skills this group has. Um, but, yeah, some of the more positives you, you did bring up, uh, Malik Curry, he's continuing his hot streak at least. He had 11 points, second most on the team. Um, and even though he didn't shoot all that great, and that's the second most points that he's got from the foul line this year in a single game. So it's good to see that he's still finding ways to contribute because this is the third straight game scoring in double digits in the fifth time in the last seven games that he's reached double digits. So he really seems to have found his stride this year. Yeah, I mean, Big 12 play, he's been a completely different player than what we saw in non-conference play. And they even talked about in the game where Curry says, you know, anytime I'm at a new team because this is his third school, it's always seemed like it's taken me a while to get acclimated. And we're seeing that now. I mean, during the toughest stretch of schedule that we've had, he's been the guy who stepped up when we needed him most. Um, You know, we talked about last week against Baylor where he was basically our entire offense the last 10 minutes of the second half. And he's so comfortable with the ball in his hands. Um, you know, he does kind of get some blinders on there where, you know, he's just trying to figure out how to get away to the rim, but he's just so good at it. He does it every time, even when the defense knows it's coming. Um, so I'm not going to complain about it. You know, if he can get in there and draw fouls and finish in the lane, even when the defense knows it's coming and he's knows he's going to do it as soon as he crosses the half court line, I'm okay with it as long as he's producing because we need the production. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, this would be a perfect team for him if we still had guys like Culver or Oscar who could box out and clean up some of those misses he has around the rim. But we just, for whatever reason, we just don't seem to have that this year. Um, But, you know, another positive that I saw, you could argue that this was Taz's best showing since he missed that Texas game with COVID. I mean, he shot the ball well, scored in the 20s for the first time in conference play. Uh, he just needs to clean up those turnovers, though. The only game he had more turnovers this year was the UAB game with seven, and he had six on Saturday. So, you know, pretty sloppy with the ball sometimes, but um, I'd like to, you know, hopefully see him clean that up because that leads to so many easy buckets for the opponent. But, uh, you know, being positive, he did get hot in that game, and that's what we need to be successful. Taz is a huge part of this offense and it'll go as he goes. So we need to find a way to get him consistently reaching 20 points per game again. Yeah. And I think the thing about Taz, too, that leads to the turnovers is he he tends to kind of press a little bit um, and kind of force the issue, um, which is good because you want someone. I mean, Deshaun Butler did that all the time when we needed points. He was the guy who was just like, give me the ball. I'll figure out how to, how to get a bucket. Um, and I, I kind of see a little bit of that in Taz, maybe not to the same level, but, um, you know, the issue is, I think, again, kind of going back to the system, you know, we really don't, you know, have guys off the ball um, that are open in, 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 you know, the sets that we're running. And, you know, he's kind of having to make passes that are a little bit more aggressive. He's trying to, you know, get guys open. He's trying to get himself open. He's trying to manipulate the defense. And when the defense is solely focused on him, it makes it tough. So um, obviously the t- turning has come down, but, you know, I think, it would help out a lot if we could find, you know, either a, a system or a certain player that we can utilize a little bit more. Um, and Bridges is a guy who only had, I think, four shots. Again, he was in foul trouble. But, um, you know, to, to step up and help take some of that load off and give him more open passes to make. Because if you're just kind of standing there on the perimeter or standing on the low block, you're not helping anybody. You need to move when you're off ball. Um, and I don't see a ton of movement either. Um, Sean moves a lot because that's kind of his game, but everyone else just kind of waits for the ball. And 
that's not good for anyone. So while the turnovers show up on Taz's stat sheet, I'm sure that not all of them are because, you know, he's doing something wrong um, more than he's just trying to press. Yeah. And, um, you know, you make a good point, kind of being lazy on offense, you know, just standing around waiting for the ball. It'll be interesting to see if Coach Huggs really starts cracking down and pulling, you know, guys who are always on the court and making them sit for not listening to him or just, you know, not running the offense he wants because it is becoming a big issue and he has gotten very outspoken in these past two conferences. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that, that's one of the things I have in my notes is, you know, I would like to see a new starting five because, you know, these are the five guys I think that deserve it. Um, they've been playing well for most of Big 12 conference play um, and kind of changed to see what the bench rotation ends up looking like, too. So, you know, I'd like to see Curry start at the point guard. I know having that sixth man type bench score is kind of something that Huggins really likes, but I think we need him in the starting lineup because, I think it relieves a lot of pressure off Taz and Sean. Um, Obviously you keep Taz, Sean and Jalen in there, but I would move Gabe in as the starting center, um, even though he does tend to get into foul trouble. And I think that's why Huggins does bring him off the bench, but that rebounding and defense, um, I think completely overrides what Cottrell could potentially bring. Um, So I have Cottrell moving to the bench and, um, the one thing I have about Cottrell, too, is that, you know, I would kind of, since we're getting into Big 12 play and we're not seeing the improvement, is I would have him as what I'm calling a, a two-minute player. So you get him, you sub him in, you see if he's playing all right, you see if he has a shot. If not, you sub him out the next stoppage, just kind of a heat check sort of thing. Um, and if he doesn't get it going, you know, I would like to see kind of some of the young guys get an expanded role. Someone like Jamel King, he's a small forward who's a really good three-point shooter, or even a Conquo. Um, because he's supposed to be a better inside finisher and we could use that. Um, uh, another thing I had was, you know, reducing Keddie's minutes to 10 to 15 a night. I think that's good for him and seeing a little bit more of Kobe because when Kobe was out there, even for the small amount of time he was against Texas tech, he looked good. You know, he made some nice defensive plays. He got open. Um, you know, he, had, I think he put up a shot, he missed it, but it was a good look and, you know, he's doing what he needs to do. Um, I would like to see him more because I think his offensive upside is way higher than um, Keddy. Yeah, I'm with you, too. I, I, I wonder why we don't see Kobe more often, because obviously he's not, you know, perfect when he's out there, but he does he does stick out. I mean, which is saying a lot, but uh, for a young guy and I, I think he would improve with more minutes and, um, you know, Maybe it's because Malik and um, Katie Johnson are pretty good players, but, uh, you know, you see Cottrell get all of these minutes and he's really not producing and he keeps getting, you know, the playing time. So I wonder why um, Coach Huggins is so quick to pull Kobe off the court. Well, I know, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, just the crowded guard rotation. And um, that's one thing um, Huggins said recently, I think it might've been today or yesterday, where he said that, you know, he just doesn't think he used the, did a great job in the transfer portal, bringing in the guys that he did. Um, And if you look at it, it makes sense because, you know, he says he wants to play more two bigs a night, but Gabe and, um, or not Gabe, Gabe Kerrigan and Polycap um, are all kind of the same guy. And it's hard to play both those guys at the same time. So it was interesting that he didn't bring in another wing because right now our only kind of true wing slash forward is Jalen Bridges. I mean, we have Jamel King, he's young, and he's probably going to redshirt. But, you know, last year we could rotate Bridges and Matthews in at that kind of four spot. And even though Matthews wasn't great all the time, he provided a big body that we could put in there and at least rebound the ball, play a little bit of defense and bother people with his length. And right now we don't have that. You know, our backcourt is, you know, Curry, who's six foot, Taz, who's six four, Sean, who's six two or six three, and then Keddy, who's, you know, six three. Kobe, who's six two, um, we just don't have size, and it's really hard to kind of trot out four guys who would be six four and shorter around Gabe, who's six seven. So I think that's the issue. Is uh, you know, Hugs doesn't want to go too too small, and I, I kind of understand the concern with that. I wonder if the issue is, and I don't remember the exact month that happened, but I wonder if the issue is Coach Hugs thought that Derek Culver was coming back. And then that whole weird thing happened with his agent. And then maybe 
by then, you know, the transport portal might have been picked over a lot. I don't know. That's just me speculating, but I, I suspect that's one of the issues. That's a good point. Yeah, because Culver would have fit well on this team, I think, you know, because um, you could go two bigs. You could go with one big and uh, something like Bridges or Cottrell then, and it would make a lot more sense. Um, you know, the bigs that we have now, it's just they clutter up the floor way too much on offense. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I just had two more things, but I kind of wanted to save it for the end of the tech recap. Do you have anything else? No. No? All right. Uh, You know, one thing I wanted to mention was, you know, you don't ever want to blame a game on the refs, and I don't blame this game on the referees, but Texas Tech, I mean, they probably would have won regardless. They're a good team, and WVU turned the ball over a lot. With all that being said, the refs made that game pretty much unwatchable, for me at least, in the second half. Completely inconsistent with their calls. They weren't calling over-the-back calls on Texas Tech, who seemed to be guilty of it several times towards Polly Polycap. We mentioned how he only had one rebound. I think that was, you know, part of the problem there. And then on the following possession, they would call these little ticky-tack fouls on the other side of the court. You know, there has to be some consistency in their calls. And I know it's not an easy job, but they have to be better. Nobody should know the name of the refs before or after the game. Kip Kissinger, talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> they, they aren't why fans tune in. We tune in to see these incredible student athletes, and sometimes I feel like the game is being dictated by the striped shirts. Four Mountaineers fouled out. Also, 30 fouls in a game. That is the most by a West Virginia squad since 2018. Uh, the, the refs just took a very entertaining game and put the spotlights on them. And that should never happen. Let the players be the stars. Oh yeah. I mean the 14 more free throws that Texas tech had were basically the difference in the game. I mean, you know, if you take that last minute out, it was a one, it was a single digit game and you know, those free throws, all those ones that added just kind of extended it. Um, And Texas tech didn't have a very good offensive night. I think most of the game, they were under 40% from the field. WV was shooting better from the field all game up until the very end. And I think because WV was pushing to close that deficit um, and it, it's hard to fight against the, the officials. I mean, that the foul calls were just so it just didn't make any sense. And then there was some like tra- traveling calls that were being called too that were very kind of minute, like things that happen every play. And I just didn't get it. Like, I, I don't understand what anyone hopes to accomplish by calling two different games on the same court. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I don't want to sound like a crybaby because we lost, because I know there's some games, you know, we're getting, you know, more fouls going our way than the other team. It just happens. But this, this time it just seemed like, you know, immediately inconsistent. Like someone would jump on Polly's back, grab a rebound and put it back in. And then immediately we would go down the court and we would get this little ticky tack foul on us. It was just weird that like that quick, you saw it go from being called very loosely to very tight, like not even a minute later. So I don't know. I I just wish the refs would kind of be more invisible. Like, I don't know. Like I said, I don't want to know a referee's name. If I'm looking up what a referee's name is, that means they're being way too involved, too involved in a game. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think this game could have been a lot more fun too with, uh, you know, the the style of play that we all play, you know, we play physical defense um, and it ended up being what over 50 free throws in that game. Um, You know, I would have been fine if you would have just let both teams play a little bit you know, let some fouls go. I know our bread and butter is kind of making free throws and we still shot, you know, I think 20 free throws or something, but you know, if it ends up being a game where we're both just kind of playing physical and both teams end up shooting, you know, in the teens and free throws, that's a much more fun game to watch because everyone knows when you turn into WVU and Texas tech, it's going to be a defensive struggle. And when you take out that physicality element, as long as it's not egregious, you know, it, it just kind of takes away what people tune in to watch and it changes the game for the fans. You know, me as a WVU fan, someone else as a Texas Tech fan are going to come in and say, you know, why can't we watch the game be played the way that we're used to watching it be played? It just ruins the product. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about with that game was um, 
the Demon Kerrigan incident, where I guess after the game, uh, Texas Tech fans were accusing him of, you know, being disrespectful towards their fans section, but um, doing some digging from the sounds of it, the Texas Tech fans were giving him a really hard time. God knows what they were saying. I mean, even our student section, I'm sure, is saying some god awful things to the opponents. But apparently some WVU players were making, you know, I, I guess they were saying sexual gestures towards uh, the student crowd. I'm sure this is nothing new. I mean, keep in mind the the people playing basketball are, you know, also the same age as, as the fans in the stands. So there, there should be accountability all around. But I mean, I didn't see this as a huge incident. Obviously, you don't want to do anything to embarrass our school or your coaching staff or your teammates. But, um, yeah, I mean, a bunch of Texas Tech fans took the opportunity to say how disgusting it was and, and, and all this stuff. But, um, you know, all the details didn't really come out about the situation. I would love to know what they said to him to make him react that way. So what did you think about that situation? Yeah, I think it's just something that's, you know, overblown, even though it didn't get too big. Thank goodness. But, you know, there's nothing physical that happened as long as there's nothing kind of racial or, you know, insensitive kind of said to someone like people saying you know suck my egg you know or, <laughs> or something along those lines um you know or even something you know like f off you know whatever i'm okay with that they're college kids you know that they, they go to frat parties and say worse so um just because it happens you know adjacent to a cameraman it's not that big of a deal <laughs> yeah i'm with you I, I don't think it's that big of a deal either and like i said i would love to know what they were saying to them to him for him to have that reaction it sounds a lot like you know it's cool if i make fun of you but if something is said back then i'm offended that's what it sounded like to me personally but <laughs> yeah i think it should go both ways i mean it's not like it was the malice in the palace you know it's just people chirping people do that yeah. all the time it makes it fun yeah and it was a highly emotional game so Hopefully it just gets forgotten about. So moving on, the Oklahoma and Arkansas preview. The Mountaineers take on Oklahoma Wednesday and Arkansas Saturday to close out the week. Neither game is an easy win, but both games are very winnable, I think. And this would be a great way to get WVU back on track. What do you think? Yeah, Oklahoma comes in. This is the first time um, that we'll be playing them without Lon Kruger. Um, they get Porter Moser, who is the uh, former head coach of Loyola Chicago, but he did not bring Sister Jean with him. So that <laughs> magic is gone. Um, Oklahoma, they're a solid team, but, you know, they've had some kind of head scratchers. Um, they're four and one against Q2 opponents. Um, they only have one win against a Q1 opponent. That was against Iowa State. But ever since they beat Iowa State, they've been on a four game losing streak that includes losses to kind of similar to WVU, Texas, Kansas, Baylor, and then kind of the one oddball is TCU, which I don't think anyone really knows if they're legit or not. So, um, you know, they look to be a solid team. I mean, the Big 12 doesn't have a bad team, but are they better than WVU? It's kind of tough to say at this point. Yeah, I'm exactly with you. Oklahoma is 12-7 and seven as of right now. But like you said, they're on a four-game losing streak. They're only two and five in conference play. And although they were blown out in a couple of those games, they only lost by three to Kansas. So, I mean, it's not like that's a bad loss. They lost by one to TCU. And like you said, they beat a ranked Iowa State team. So I really don't know which version of Oklahoma we're going to get, but it's not like West Virginia is consistent either. So, I mean, this game really is a toss up for me. Yeah. And, and kind of looking at Oklahoma, you know, they, they have an interesting team. They're much more defensive focused. They're, you know, I'm sure you've seen the graphics during all the games about how good the Big 12 defense is. Um, 21 ranked 21st in defense, 67th in offense. But their offense is pretty balanced. Um, they have two guys who score 12 points each, um, three guys who scored over nine points per game. Um, kind of the the X factor that I should, you know, put for this game is their leading scorer, and that's um groves he is their six foot ten um center um he's not a great rebounder only averaging six rebounds per game but you know he's he's a pretty efficient scorer whenever he's on 77 percent at the rim 38 percent from three um but in the games that they've lost um the past four games that they've lost in a row he's only averaged seven points per game 
So um, he's also had some turnover issues. He had five turnovers against TCU, three against Texas, four against Baylor. So, you know, he seems to be, if you kind of look at the the stat lines from each of the games, if you can take Groves out, it seems like he's kind of the, the key piece that makes it all work. And if you limit him, you have a much better chance of winning the game. Yeah, that, that's interesting because, yeah, I mean, they shoot almost 50% from the field, which is very impressive after watching several Mountaineer games because we normally don't get anywhere near that. But, yeah, like you said, they have, like, five guys averaging between 9 and 12 points a game. So you really don't know who they're going to rely on for points. Um, but, I mean, I actually thought that, you know, that's that's going to be a problem for us because then we can't really focus in on one particular player. But uh, you're saying this one guy normally dominates their offense? Yeah, I will, not necessarily dominates, but uh, in the past four games, you know, it seems like um, Gibson still got his, Harkless, Hill, and Goldwire kind of all still got theirs. But in the losses, Groves kind of was either really inefficient, shooting like three for 11, or he was just only scoring like three or six points. So somehow those four teams kind of figured out how to cut his production down and by doing so gave them a much better chance to win. And it kind of makes sense because, you know, Groves is really their, you know, he's their big guy, you know, he can shoot off the catch and shoot, but he's also really good at the rim 77%. Um, But, you know, if you look at Gibson, Gibson doesn't score anywhere from anywhere except for the outside. Um, he is shooting 70% of his shots from three. Um, that's Gibson there, I think, point guard. Um, and then the other two, um, Hill, um, he's a good defender. He's 6'6", but he shoots 77% um, of his shots at the rim. He has 11 dunks on the season, which actually leads the team as a as a wing. Um, so, you know, he, he still got his. And Goldwire, who is the transfer from Duke, is more of a, a pure point guard. But... You know, if you kind of take out the guy who's setting up in the post, probably setting screens for guys and just denying, um, it makes it a lot tougher to, um, you know, get those open three-point shots. It makes it tougher to, you know, get extra driving lanes for Hill, um, who's not really a good shooter. So, um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping our defense kind of gets back on track this game because, like I said, just too many – easy buckets inside like I I feel like I can live more with a team who's just hot shooting uh you know deep twos or three pointers on us than allowing all these easy layups so I'm hoping um you know less of that this game yeah and another thing kind of um not to pile on groves but uh Oklahoma is not a great offensive rebounding team and they don't block a lot of shots either they rank um 248th in the nation in offensive rebounding percentage and 343rd in the nation in block rate. So this could be a game where WVU kind of solves some of its inside scoring problems. It could be a game where we don't get out-rebounded for once. Um, I'm really hoping that these stats stay true and we don't have some sort of twisted outcome where Oklahoma becomes everything that WVU can't defend. Um, Another thing that kind of goes well for us, I think, too, is that... Oklahoma is very, very prone to turnovers. They are 337th in the nation in turnover percentage. I'm not sure how many Division I basketball schools are, but that has to be pretty darn close to the bottom. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many steals Keddy and Gabe end up with today because, uh, or not today, but tomorrow, um, because those guys can generate a lot of steals. And it's been a while. Um, we mentioned last podcast where we haven't had more steals than the other team um, in a while. And this could be a game where we get back on track to doing things that we were doing in that non-conference schedule because it matches up well. Um, it's just that we have to go in there and play. Yeah, and that's all good news for Mountaineer fans because uh, I wouldn't say this is a must-win game, but it's pretty darn close because on the other side of the Arkansas game, we got Baylor and Texas Tech again. And so if we're going to that Baylor and Texas Tech game um, with that many conference losses, it's probably not going to end well this year. So we really do need to get this Oklahoma win. And um, hopefully that gets us going on a hot streak a little bit. Yeah, I I would classify this as a must win just because, you know, if we're going to finish 500 in Big 12 play, 
we need to start winning sometime. And, you know, this is the most beatable team on our schedule for the foreseeable future in the big 12, not including Arkansas. Um, and, you know, you need to figure out some teams that you can beat and, you know, it might not be Baylor this year. It might not be Texas tech this year. It might not be Kansas this year, but if you can figure out how to beat Oklahoma twice, TCU twice, Oklahoma state twice, there's six of the, what, uh, nine wins that you need to finish at 500. Yeah. I'm with you. All right, so um, that leads us to Arkansas on Saturday. Arkansas is 14-5, and five and they are currently on a four-game winning streak, so it's almost the exact opposite of <laughs> Oklahoma. They have Old Miss on Wednesday before they take on the Mountaineers, um, so I don't know if they'll keep that winning streak going or not, but regardless, this is a hot team that um, – you know, as we know in college basketball, it's it's all about getting hot at the right time, and, and they seem to be rolling right now. Yeah, and, and in some ways they're similar to Oklahoma when it comes to kind of looking at their record. Uh, they've only won against one quadrant one opponent in LSU, and LSU is pretty darn good this year. Um, but they're three and zero against Q two teams, but they've lost to two Q three teams, which are bad teams. Those are teams that are you know ranked usually a hundred or lower. They lost to Vanderbilt and Hofstra. Um, so it's kind of, you know, looking at this team, it looks like they're very kind of inconsistent. You don't know what team you're going to run into because on paper, it looks like this is a team that could just give WVU fits. Um, they have a lot of really good offensive weapons. They have a really good big guy. Um, on paper, they're scary, but it depends on if Jekyll or Hyde shows up on Saturday. Yeah, they have uh, J.D. Note, who is averaging 18 points per game, and they have three other players averaging over 10. So, um, again, pretty well balanced. And they even have guys averaging 9 and 8 points. And some of those guys are coming off the bench. So just a wide range of guys they can rely on for points, even if uh, their top scorers are having off nights. And Arkansas averages almost 80 points per game. So it'll be an interesting matchup, but like you discovered before we came on here, you know, they're not always averaging around 80. Sometimes it's higher and sometimes it's lower. Yeah, kind of drastically too. And it may be the uh, opponents that they're playing too, but some of it too, I think is also because one, they play at a really fast tempo. Um, it's ranked 19th fastest in all of division one. And two is because the overall, they're not very good from three. Um, you know, they're, they're, Note on um, their top score only shoots 29% from three and he, but he shoots pretty equally from at the rim mid range and from three and he shoots the ball 16 times a game. So he's a guy who's just going to fire up shots as much as he can. And if he catches fire, that's bad news for WVU. So um, he's six foot two. So it could be someone that Caddy handles. Um, it'd be interesting to see how Huggins approaches that. Um, but the guy I'm really kind of worried about um, is Williams, their, their center. He is their leading rebounder um, at 8.9 rebounds per game. He's averaging 8.5 points per game. Um, he's 6'10". He's an elite defender, and he's also a really good passer for a big man. He's averaging 3.2 assists per game as a big man. Um, you can't name any WVU players that are averaging 3.2 assists per game so far. So, um, you know, he's a guy who he scores – inside and from mid-range so he does have a little bit of a jumper he will put up the three i think he's averaging a little bit less than a three-pointer a game but you know he's someone who with his size and athleticism um could really give wvu fits on the boards and scoring inside yeah um i think it'll be a fun matchup it's fun that they throw in these non-conference games um you know right in the middle of conference play because you get matchups like this i actually like it when west virginia plays a team that likes to put up a lot of points because it's just fun to watch contrasting styles go up against each other. Yeah, and um, to the three-point stat, they um, shoot 29.2% as a team, which is 327th in the country. So not a good three-point shooting team, but knowing WVU, somehow, someway, someone on that team will end up shooting 60% from three. <laughs> yeah, they'll get plenty <laughs> of open looks from the corner, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's all I got in Arkansas. You got anything else? Um, do you want to do some uh, predictions for the games? Do yeah, let's do it. Uh, so for Oklahoma, um, I'm going to say it's going to be a low-scoring game. I'm going to say WVU wins 65 
61. Nice. Yeah, I don't have any, you know, scores off the top of my head, but I also think um, the conference game will be low scoring. And then I think the Arkansas game will actually be high scoring. And I think WVU will score a lot as well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say 2-0. and At the bare minimum, I think they'll go 1-1. and I think they'll beat Oklahoma and lose to Arkansas. But I'm going to go ahead and say we're going to be 2-0 and this week. Yeah, uh, I would like to see that. I think uh... – I agree with you on um, Arkansas. I think it could be something like, you know, 78 to 72. I don't know who gets the 78, who gets the 72. It really depends on which Arkansas team shows up. But um, I think it's really going to depend a lot, too, on how WVU performs against Oklahoma. If they go out and have a bad showing, I could see this kind of the poo-poo face kind of continuing through Saturday, um, especially after Huggins probably has them on the treadmill all day Thursday and Friday. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how the Oklahoma game plays out. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, a bad Oklahoma loss could, you know, basically lead to a bad performance on Saturday because then everyone's just going to be really down for that game. So you make a good point. I mean, Wednesday, the more I talk about it, it is sounding like a must-win game. Yeah, it's uh, for a game in the middle of the week against – an unranked opponent, it seems like the most important game that we've had in a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, guys. So uh, we're going to do a new little segment. This is what we're going to be doing for several weeks now. We have ranked the top 50 football players at West Virginia of the 21st century because it seems like a lot of people rank the top 50 all-time West Virginia players. So we just thought it would be fun if we just did it, you know, in the past 20 or so years. Who are the top 50 players we've had the pleasure of seeing? And before we get to player number 50, we thought it was only right to have a few honorable mentions. These guys, you know, they were originally on our list, but they got bumped out for other players. But uh, we thought they were worth giving a shout out. First on the honorable mention is Charles Sims who played um, just the 2013 year, but he was basically West Virginia's whole offense that year with over 1,000 rushing yards and almost 1,500 total yards. Plus, he had 14 total touchdowns. He was a bright spot on a rough year for the Mountaineers. I believe we only won four games that year. And honestly, he probably would have made our list if he would have just played at West Virginia for more than one year. Yeah, he was unreal that year. I mean, just to kind of put it in perspective, he had nearly 900 more yards of total offense than any other offensive skill player on the offense. He only had 100 yards less of total offense than WVU's top passer for the season, which was Clint Trickett, who had 1,600 yards passing that year. And he scored 41% of the team's total touchdowns. Just an unreal season. Um, uh, you know, a real positive on kind of a bad season, like Tyler said, uh, four wins, not great. Um, and he went, went to go on and have a solid NFL career. He got drafted in the third round by Tampa Bay, played for four years and had 958 yards rushing. And this kind of surprised me, 1,190 yards receiving. So more receiving yards than rushing in eight total touchdowns. So not only did he have a you know nice stint here at WVU, where he definitely made a huge impact on offense, but he played in the pros for a little bit and, you know, not, not an all time great, not a pro bowler or anything, but carved out a nice little niche and hopefully made enough to retire. Yeah, for sure. And it's always good to see former Mountaineers playing on Sundays. Um, Next on our list was Scooter Barry. He played from 2007 to 2010 and he was just so important on West Virginia's defensive line for those years he only totaled seven sacks on his career Uh, but he was an absolute force on that defensive line and he did a great job of opening up space for other guys yeah Um, the one thing I always liked about Scooter Berry is you know the story behind him so I believe he came in as a fullback I want to say he was um, friends or like a half-brother or something to Jason Gwaltney. So when Gwaltney joined the team um, and then left because he flunked out or whatever, Scooter Berry stayed, bulked up, ended up playing defensive tackle. So um, I always thought that was pretty interesting. And he was a guy who has played a lot since his freshman year. You know, he was a really good athlete, just a guy who 
you know, like to eat, like to lift, get big. Um, and he had, he was a key piece of that defensive line. That was so good um, with Johnny Dingle, who we'll talk about here in a little bit and Keelan Dykes, who unfortunately um, didn't make the list. I don't think um, so. Yeah. Um, just a really quality guy and a fun story to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think Keelan did make the list. I think he'll be yeah. coming up in a week or so. That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah made we'll so many <laughs> I know we made a lot. Of, it took a lot of thought putting this list together. So don't give us too hard of a time if you don't agree with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just mentioned the next guy. Johnny Dangle was also on our honorable mentions. He played from 2005 to 2007 and he totaled 14 and a half sacks in his career at West Virginia. He played on some of West Virginia's greatest teams while he was here. In his senior year, he racked up nine sacks and nine tackles for a loss. So great um, last year at WVU for Johnny Dingle. Yeah, um, he's one guy I would like to see to come back because the pr- previous two years before that, um, you'll kind of notice this is a trend with our honorable mentions. He didn't really do much. He really had that great junior year and then decided to go pro, which didn't really amount to much, um, you know. Again, if he would have came back for that senior year, who knows what he could have done? Um, he could have a he had something really nice to build off of. Um, but that year was really special, especially because um, he did sack Sam Bradford in the Fiesta Bowl, um, the game that everyone will remember um, for being the game after Rich Rod abandoned WVU and Bill Stewart ended up winning the head coaching job at WVU. Yeah. For sure. He he had a good career. Um, the next guy, this one pained Brandon not to put him on the <laughs> list, but Will Johnson, who played at West Virginia from 2007 to 2010, he has one of the best underdog stories you'll ever hear. He was a utility player for the Mountaineers who could play fullback, tight end, wherever you needed him. And he also shared time with guys like Tyler Urban. So um, it wasn't like he was a star or a constant starter. And then he sits out a year after he graduates and then participates in West Virginia's Pro Day in 2012, ends up getting signed by the Pittsburgh Steelers and has a solid career in the NFL for a few years. And let's not forget about his memorable catch against Marshall in 2010, where he makes a tiptoe catch in the back corner of the end zone with 12 seconds left to help tie the game. Um, probably the game we were closest to ever losing to Marshall. Yeah. And I think Will Johnson was just kind of like a late bloomer. I think, you know, I was reading about him where, you know, he was six foot six, 180 pounds coming in. He was a wide receiver. Um, wasn't really making the depth chart there. So they moved him to tight end and he was like, I only weigh like 200 pounds now. How am I going to play here? Um, and he ended up continuing to put on weight and getting stronger. He loved being in the weight room. And ended up, you know, earning a role for himself as a blocker. And even Tony Gibson said, you know, if you'd have told me, will Will Johnson be playing in the NFL as a fullback one day, you know, whenever he walked on campus, I would have told you no. But just because of his hard work, his work ethic, um, you know, his ability to, you know, learn quickly, he he had a nice role for the Steelers. I mean, um, he actually got some catches and carries on that team because he was a very good athlete. I think he ran like a four four or four five. Um, for such a big guy. Um, so yeah, I just really like his story. Um, you know, he had a nice niche in the NFL, which I love seeing Mountaineers in the NFL. And, you know, he's someone who, um, you know, who knows what could have been had he had another year at WVU to kind of develop further and settle into a role. Cause like you said, he did move around a lot. Yeah, for sure. He, he just has a great story and was worth giving a shout out. Our last guy before we get into our list is Robert Sands, who was probably closest to making the list. He played at West Virginia from 2008 to 2010, had a monster sophomore season with five interceptions. His junior year was okay, and then he went to the NFL to be drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals in the fifth round of the NFL draft. Um, he was a tough one not to put on the list, but uh, he's our last honorable mention. Yeah. Robert Sands is just kind of, he reminds me of the guy that the NFL always falls in love with, you know, the big fast rangy guy who was just oozing potential. And that's kind of what got him drafted in the third round by the Cincinnati Bengals. He didn't end up panning out, but you know, you could see it in that sophomore year where he was doing a little bit of everything. Um, he played primarily, 
that um, like strong safety slash linebacker kind of hybrid role that WVU does. And he was just so disruptive. You know, we mentioned the five picks, but 65 tackles as well. That's quite a bit for a safety. And, um, you know, the following year, his tackles fell, his tackles for loss went up a little bit, but his interceptions went down as well. Um, so, you know, the one thing that he ran into issues with in the NFL was that he wasn't really a safety, that he was more of a linebacker. So they moved him to, um, I believe, outside linebacker, and it just didn't work out there. But, you know, I think another year at WVU, maybe he could have developed his safety skills a little bit more, or maybe he would have transitioned more into a linebacker role and been able to bulk up for the NFL the following year. Um, just someone who maybe jumped the gun a little bit too much. And we see that every year with guys going into the draft. Um, you know, people fall in love with them. Their agents kind of push them into something that maybe physically or mentally they're not ready for. Um, but, you know, that one year at WV was just so special that we had to include him somewhere, some mention of him on this list because, you know, he's an important part, piece of uh, West Virginia history. Yeah, for sure. Just one of the best defensive seasons in recent memory. Um, all right, so let's get in into the list here coming in at number 50 chris kneeled chris played nose tackle at west virginia from 2007 to 2010 he was a beast on our defensive line and although he had only six sacks in his career he was so important with clogging up the middle of our defensive line for several years nose tackles don't always get a lot of love but we wanted to acknowledge what a special player he was at wvu oh yeah and, and the one thing about chris kneeled too and it's kind of a common trend with uh, Rich Rod recruits is that they move around a lot. You know, you have Will Johnson moving from wide receiver to tight end slash fullback. Chris Neal came in as a tight end and moved to nose tackle um, and put on a lot of weight to do it. Um, he started 39 games for the Mountaineers, though, uh, from 2008 to 2010. So he's kind of an Iron Man there. That's a lot of games over the course of three years when you're the guy who's right in the middle of the defense. Um, he did rack up over 130 tackles for his career, but kind of the, the crowning achievement for him is that he was that centerpiece that led to some really good rush defenses. So in 2008 and 2009, WVU finished top 40 in rush defense and yards per game, which is solid, nothing exceptional. But in 2010, they had the second best run defense in the country. And Chris Neal was a big part of it. I mean, he was a guy that a lot of people acknowledged as someone who could just eat up two or three blocks in the middle. Um, think about how much talk Aaron Donald gets about how much double teams he gets. Um, we had a guy like that who maybe didn't get the penetration that Aaron Donald does, obviously, but someone who was more of a Casey Hampton type for you Steeler fans out there who would just eat up blocks and destroy the inside run game. Um, and it transitioned pretty well for him. He ended up getting drafted in the seventh round by the Washington Redskins. And he did play four years serving as a backup nose tackle for them. So, again, a nice little career for him in the NFL. Yeah, and honestly, if he – I mean, he just kept getting injured in the NFL. And if if he could have stayed healthy, who knows? I mean, he might have uh, stuck around and had a nice little career, but the injuries just kept piling up for him. But um, a great Mountaineer nonetheless. Oh, yeah. And, I you know, it's, I love guys like that who are just like the hard workers, the guys who – you know, it's like having an offensive lineman on the list, which we do have some further up. Um, here are guys who just don't get the mention. You know, everyone knows their name if you're a Mountaineer fan, but for non-Mountaineer fans, how many people knew of Chris Neald? And he was someone who really allowed our linebackers to do what they did um, and free up, you know, to eat extra blockers so our defensive ends on those teams could eat as well. Um, and just a really great Mountaineer, never complained. And... Yeah, he, he turned himself a nice football career from it. Yeah, for sure. Coming in at 49 on our list, Jock Sanders. Jock Sanders played at West Virginia from 2007 to 2010. Jock was only listed at five foot six inches, but he was a special player due to his speed. And WVU tried to use him in you know every way that they could he totaled over 600 rushing yards while he was at west virginia but more importantly he had over 200 catches nearly 2,000 career receiving yards and 20 total touchdowns with the rushing and catching so they used jock in the slot position and he was just a really reliable target for you know four years at west virginia oh yeah 
and it was interesting again another guy who's moving positions um he was recruited i believe the same year that noel divine was recruited mm-hmm. and um you know those two smaller guys he was at, jock was actually a running back as well um but then he ended up moving with the wide receiver because you know noel's noel so um it worked out for him tremendously i mean not only did he play some running back not only did he play some wide receiver but he also served as kick and punt returner he was kind of our swiss army knife um and you know that's part of the reason why we included him on here but he you know um he was also the former all-time leader in receptions uh he broke david saunders record at wvu which was later broken by Tavon austin stedman bailey um which they were extremely special on their own um but you know this is kind of my favorite three-year stretch from him he had three straight years with 50 plus receptions um in 2008 he was first in receptions second in receiving yards, third in total scrimmage yards for WVU. In 2009, he was first in receptions, first in team receiving yards, second in total scrimmage yards. And in 2010, he was first in receptions, second in team receiving yards behind Tavon Austin, and third in total scrimmage yards. So that three-year stretch there is just incredible to be that consistent and be that number one guy for such a long time. we don't You don't see that very often. I mean, we're going to talk about a guy here in a couple picks, who really only had a two-year stretch that was great. Jock did it for three, and mm-hmm. um, especially in an offense that was run-heavy, just exceptional. Yeah, yeah, definitely a solid player at West Virginia. Coming in at 48, Quincy Wilson. Quincy played at West Virginia from 1999 to 2003. He was Avon Coburn's backup at the beginning of his career, and Quincy ran for over 900 yards as a backup his junior year. Then in 2003, he took on the starter's role and did not disappoint, going over 1,400 total yards and scoring 13 touchdowns. His only receiving touchdown of his career was his most famous play, simply known as the run. Quincy juked out several future NFL players, including Vince Wilford, uh, Sean Taylor, and then he ran over safety Brandon Merriweather, who also had a nice NFL career, launching him off his feet. It's a run West Virginia fans will probably forever see on WVU highlight reels. Oh, yeah. And it was a clutch one, too. It wasn't just some random play in a blowout. Um, third and 13 with two minutes, 13 seconds left in the game against number two ranked Miami. WVU was down 13 to 19 when he made that run. So, um, you know, that obviously kept him on the list because he, he was just such that play is something that's going to live in WVU lore forever. Even though WVU ended up losing that game, you know, that single, the effort of the single guy to go in there and try to carry his team on the back to the win is just exceptional. Um, he did finish with, um, 2,700 total yards, 21 touchdowns for his career at WVU. And um, he did have a, a solid um, NFL career. He was a seventh-round pick by the Bengals. He spent three years on the Cincinnati Bengals practice squad. Obviously not where you want to be, but you know you have the opportunity to get caught up, and he did get caught up a couple times. He actually led um, the spring pre- – or not spring practices, but uh, the preseason games a couple years where he led the um, preseason in rushing, um, not just for the Bengals but for the league. So um, it wasn't for lack of trying that he didn't get NFL looks. Um, But the cool thing is, is that um, I believe it was about a week ago, uh, Quincy actually got his first head coaching opportunity. He is now the head coach at the University of Fort Lauderdale after serving as assistant head coach at West Virginia State University for the past several years. So um, Quincy's still in the game and let's see uh, how his football journey continues. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Um, and he's also a West Virginia boy. He went to high school not too far from me and Brandon and was just an absolute legend in uh, West Virginia high school as well. When he finished up his career, he was fifth in rushing attempts and fifth in uh, in rushing yards all time at WVU. And he's since been passed, but he's still top 10 in rushing yards and attempts. So um, just a solid career, especially since he was only a starter for one year. That's what makes it so impressive that those oh, yeah. numbers could, they could be pumped up even more. Oh yeah. And in 2003 alone, he had four games where he had over 140 yards rushing. Um, he also had a game in 2002 where he had over, I think, I think it was 198 yards rushing. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, he was just knew how to power through and get yards. I mean, it kind of reminded me a little bit of KJ Harris, who who didn't make the list, um, except way better durability, um, way more consistency. I mean, Quincy was special. And, uh, you know, another fun fact is that he, I think his senior year was the same year that J.R. House was a senior in high school, and they tied for the um, West Virginia State Player of the Year that year. Oh, yeah. That's two names you hear a lot. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Coming in at 47 is Daryl Worley. Daryl played at West Virginia from 2013 to 2015. He started his junior, sophomore, and even half of his freshman year. And he was a beast, um, totaling 10 interceptions in his career and played well enough to forego his senior season and enter the NFL draft. Uh, He was a lockdown corner in college, and he's still bouncing around in the NFL. So shout out to number 47 on our list, Daryl Worley. Oh, yeah. And, you know, his sophomore and junior years were just incredible. Three interceptions as a sophomore, which led the team, and then another six his junior year. But not only did he pick off six passes, he finished first in the Big 12 and passes defended with 12. Um, He was first team all Big 12 his junior year, um, and he was, you know, one of the first cornerbacks that I've seen in a while um, at WVU that actually I felt like I could rely on. I mean, there were several years where we had guys who were just getting burnt year after year. And, you know, if you felt if you weren't running a zone or, you know, cover four or something, that something bad was going to happen. And when you get Worley in there and he was just locked down, um, just a really special player. And it led to him being drafted in the third round. Um, I was actually reading today that Worley was actually advised to come back to school. Um, he bet on himself and decided to go pro and being a third round draft pick. Isn't bad. Um, he's played in 70 NFL games so far started in 54. Um, and he's last played for the Baltimore Ravens. He was on their practice squad earlier this year. Um, so he's had a really nice NFL career so far too. So, um, he's still young. Um, he's not going away anytime soon. I'm sure we'll see him somewhere else playing on Sundays next year. Yeah, for sure. It would have been great to have him back one more year. But like you said, I mean, he's still bouncing around. So, um, you know, maybe he made the right decision by getting out when he did. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Number 46 on our list is Gary Jennings. He played at West Virginia from 2015 to 2018. Gary had phenomenal years his junior and senior season, totaling over 2,000 receiving yards on just those two seasons alone, and finishing his career with 17 touchdowns. He and David Sills were the two-headed monster that allowed Will Greer to put up huge numbers during his time at WVU. And much like Quincy Wilson and Will Johnson, Gary Jennings had one of the most memorable plays in recent history for West Virginia. With about 20 seconds left on the clock, and the clock running, Gary pulled in a 33-yard touchdown in the back of the end zone that allowed Will Greer to run in the two-point conversion for the walk-off win in Austin, Texas. And then, of course, that was the horns-down game that everyone remembers. And um, just one of the most memorable moments for West Virginia fans in the last decade. So he had to make our list. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that throw and catch was just incredible. I mean, that was a big, big league throw. We'll talk about Will Greer um, in a future episode a little bit more, but you know, Gary Jennings was special in his own right. Um, in his junior year, um, it was kind of strange how his career broke out the last two years. He had almost 1100 yards rush to, uh, receiving, but only one touchdown <laughs> his senior year. He finished with 917 yards receiving and 13 touchdowns, which was good enough to be sixth in the NCAA that year and second in the big 12. Um, he also served as a kick and punt returner, his freshman and sophomore seasons, um, and he was just exceptional. I mean, talk about someone who, you know, finished his career as number sixth in career receiving yards at WVU, seventh in career receptions, fourth for most touchdowns in a season, um, you know, fifth in most receptions in school history his junior year. I believe he had 95 that year, um, sixth in most receiving yards in a season in school history. That was his junior year as well, where he had almost 1,100 yards. Um so those two years were really, really special. And it was crazy, too, because, you know, we'll talk about David Sills in a later episode, but 
you know, the numbers he put up were pretty insane as well. So the fact that Gary was able to thrive with someone who was just as good, if not better, um, is just incredible. Um, you know, he was just a really special player and super excited that we got to watch him for a couple years. And uh, Tyler and I were talking the other day, and the one thing that I'll never forget about him is him putting the uh, feather in his helmet. I always thought that was kind of strange, but hey, I knew how to find Gary that way. <laughs> yeah, um, like you mentioned, you know, everyone remembers David Sills during that era, but, you know, don't sleep on Gary Jennings. He was a phenomenal player those two seasons. And much like Daryl Worley, he's still bouncing around in the NFL. Last I saw just, um, you know, I think in early January, he was signed by the Chiefs. Um I don't know if it was for like their practice squad, but I mean, he's still bouncing around and who knows, he might catch on with the team and get some playing time. So good for him. And I'm glad he went to West Virginia because he was an awesome player for us. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. He ended up, uh, he was drafted in the fourth round by Seattle, but he's been on uh, the practice squad for seven different teams so far during his NFL career. So he's bouncing around quite a bit, um, but teams aren't letting him go. Um, You know, Every time he gets released, someone else tries to grab him up. So they're seeing they're seeing something. Um, it's just a matter of time, I think. Yeah, for sure. So that's our list for today, guys. We're only going to do five per episode, but um, you know, let us know if 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 you agree with it. If you thought some of our honorable mentions should have made it, just find us on social media and uh, let's have a debate about it because this is fun stuff and it's always good to. Uh, you know, give a tip of the cap to some of these great Mountaineers who gave us so many fun years. Oh, yeah. And if, you know, you're willing to dedicate the time to it, come up with your own list and uh, compare as we go along and mark the differences. And we can talk about that as we go along. Yeah, 100 percent. It's fun, guys. We we <laughs> spent a lot of time on this yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, guys, that's it for us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, thank you for listening. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone.